Well, our passage this morning is mainly the second one that we read that has to do with Moses with the um, aid of Aaron and her holding up his hands as the Israelites defeat the Amalekites at a place called Rephidim. I'm tempted to ask if uh, I could take a survey here this morning, and it would go something like this. Put up your hands if you feel as though this is an encouraging story, and keep your hands up until about 8.47 this morning. Because that's what uh, the main theme of the passage seems to be, as it uh, plays on the idea of both Moses, uh, of Moses holding up his hands, and as long as Moses is holding his hands in the air with the staff of God, the Amalekites... Um, are defeated. I couldn't help but chuckle as I read the New Living Translation um, in, my, uh, in my, my son's kids' application Bible, and it translates verses 11 and 12 literally as this. As long as Moses held up the staff with his hands, the Israelites had the advantage. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites gained the upper hand. I couldn't believe that something sort of that, uh, that pun field would make its way into an actual, uh, an actual translation. So what is the meaning of our passage today? I want to invite you, if you uh, will, to turn to um, page 50 in your black NRSVs and page 64 in your blue NRSVs as we take a, this pa- a look at this passage a little bit more carefully together. And um, in relation to that, I have um, an outline that picks up on the story in its context. Uh, Whenever I can't uh, fully understand what a passage is about, I always like to go back and look at the preceding and the following context. So what I want to do in the few minutes that we have together this morning is just for me to sort of explain the context a little bit and then uh, apply it to our own situation today and then uh, talk about how it applies to Christ. Well, in the next chapter, chapter 18, Uh, which is really the final episode in this time between crossing the Red Sea and being given the law at Sinai, Uh, we get one of those throwaway lines that's very helpful. And it summarizes what's been going on in the preceding few chapters. Moses told Jethro about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. All of the hardships that they had along the way and how the Lord had saved them. So when we think about it, uh, and we've been considering over the past uh, two to three weeks at least with the sermons offered by Professor Power and by Professor Sider Hamilton, uh, some of these episodes that happened after the crossing of the Red Sea. And there's kind of a, um, an envelope structure. Um, a passage that we didn't look at, but which is relevant, um, gives us, I think, part of a coping strategy for ministry today. Uh, in the wake of Moses, as it were. And that ministry is a shared ministry. And we learn that from the first preceding context where Moses sings this song, and then we are told that Miriam, uh, who is a prophetess and who is the sister of Moses, also uh, leads the congregation in worship. Um, So um, ministry in the wake of Moses is a shared ministry, and I think that if chapter 18 is covered next week, we'll see that in the case of Jethro admonishing Moses to delegate and to have a number of leaders help carry the load. But in between these two episodes of sharing ministry, um, we have uh, four episodes where there is a dilemma, 
And the dilemma consists of three cases of the congregation of Israel complaining. First complaining about water, then complaining about no food, then complaining about no water again. And then our episode is uh, kind of puts a double whammy on what is already a gloom situation because uh, we're told that um, it's not just a problem of grumbling from within on the part of the Israelites, but there is an invasion from without. And it's the Amalekites who come and who uh, invade. Um, so um, these are episodes that all relate to sort of a desert experience between salvation accomplished with the crossing of the Red Sea and uh, the giving of the law at Sinai and uh, entering into the promised land. Uh, let's look a little bit more closely at our um, passage. Uh, we're told in Genesis or in Exodus 17 verse 8, then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So this is the first instance in which uh, warfare is uh, introduced into the scenario. Um, and Amalek, the Amalekites are kind of a, a prototypical perennial thorn in the flesh for um, Israel. They appear uh, to, in the, the, just after the promise given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, uh, where the Amalekites are involved in um, a battle that includes Abraham in chapter 14. The Amalekites here come and attack Israel at Rephidim and try to wipe them out. Uh, the Amalekites are the descendants of Esau, and so they are related to the people of Edom, which is kind of the perennial backstabbing enemy of Israel. We get a sense of the character of the Amalekites uh, from what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 to 19, when Moses, recalling the incidents in the wilderness, says, Remember what the Amalekites did to you long ago on the way when you came out of Egypt? When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and cut off all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land he's giving you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. So here we have uh, several episodes in which the congregation grumbles, and one episode in which, um, to make matters worse, an enemy attacks from outside. Well, to my mind, the primary uh, point of relevance for this, at least in the context of our, um, our context as a, as a place of training for students of theology, uh, would go something like this. <clears throat> and the news isn't entirely good. <laughs> After people uh, get saved, uh, they soon forget. And once they get set into the context of congregational life, they begin to grumble. They begin to complain, and they complain against the lightning rod among the people, and that's Moses. Uh, so you have here a complaining congregation. And then the congregation in the next episode in chapter 16, they get downright ridiculous. They, 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 they get out of perspective and they say, I know why you brought us out here, Moses. You brought us out here to kill us. Uh, well, what an absurd accusation. They want the food to be better. They want the water to be less bitter. Uh, and then um, they're, they're fumble in their faith because there is no water. Uh, someone put it uh, well uh, when, they, when they wrote uh, as follows. 
Now he said, these three rapid-fire stories of rebellion in the desert, the ones leading up to our one involving Amalek, stagger the imagination, and perhaps they're meant to. No sooner did the Israelites leave Egypt under the most miraculous of circumstances than they, within one month of their departure, lapse into an old pattern. They again use their own perception of their circumstances as the standard by which to base reality. Let me say that again. They again use their own perception of their circumstances as the standard by which to base reality. They still have not learned that even though they are in a desert with no food or water, God is above the circumstances. So they grumble. But God uses their grumbling as an occasion not to punish his people, but to teach them something about himself. I think if we were to do another sort of survey uh, to the effect uh, of this, um, did you go through a dark period after your initial encounter with Christ? Many people would put up their hands and say, absolutely. When I first became a Christian, I was keen. I could see God's hand everywhere. But over time, I began to doubt and I began to grumble. That situation seems to be prefigured in these narratives here in Exodus. So what I would suggest for us as ministers uh, and prospective ministers is that we find in these passages help along the way when dealing with a congregation that is between the joy of salvation and between their arrival in the promised land. There's a time of grumbling that focuses upon the minister. I'll never forget what one of my seminary professors said. He said, I would advise you not to go into the ministry unless you have both the heart of a lion and the hide of a rhinoceros. And that hide of the rhinoceros comes because it seems as though no matter how much you give and how much you try and how much you try to serve God, oh, why didn't you do it this way? The food wasn't very good at the do last Friday night. The service was a little disorganized, don't you think? And on and on it goes. But in the midst of each of these situations, as we've seen over the past few weeks, there's an element of grace that comes in. Um, it's true that God doesn't part the waters anymore like he did at the conversion episode. But you remember in the sermon that Professor Power uh, shared with us, <clears throat> the water was bitter. God said to Moses, take a piece of wood and put it in the water. And then they ended up at a place where there were all kinds of trees. In other words, behind the scenes, in less direct ways, God was providing the ministers of the gospel with a measure of grace and the people with a measure of grace. The people want better food, so meat is provided in the form of quail in the evening, and bread is provided in the form of manna in the morning. And here the enemy attacks. Oh no, what do we do now? Well, in this episode, part of the strategy includes, yes, you're going to not only get it from the inside, but you're going to get it from the outside. Don't go into the ministry unless you feel called. But here's what happens when attacked from the outside. You can't always be passive. So Moses says to Joshua, who in the, who in the Septuagint is actually translated Jesus. It, it's a beautiful reading. Moses says to Jesus, choose some men and go out and fight Amalek. So there is a time to fight, as we learned in the book of Ecclesiastes. And fight we should. But do you notice that the focus is not on the battle, as important as that is, but rather the focus is on what Moses did in the preceding episode. In the preceding episode, when they had no water, 
Moses is told to take the staff of God and to go with the elders of Israel and to stand upon the rock. And he's to strike the rock, and water is provided. So too here, in what we think ought to be a battle scene where we're given a blow-by-blow description, instead the focus is entirely upon Moses doing the same thing. Moses goes up onto the hill with the staff of God, and he stands on that hill, and he holds up the staff of God, and when he gets tired, he invokes team ministry, he gets others to come and stand beside him to continue holding up his arms, and the focus is upon that kind of intercessory stature of dependence upon God. Now that, I think, is a fabulous coping strategy for ministry. When there's grumbling from within, don't be surprised and look for those moments of grace that come. And when there are attacks from without, you have to engage the battle. But the battle is won or lost depending upon that figure who is standing on the hill with his arms outstretched. I think you know where I'm going to go if there's a Christological application, but maybe not. Many people throughout the history of the ages have seen in that figure uh, of Moses holding up his arms, Christ on Golgotha with his arms outstretched, and to boot you have one figure at each side. Uh, You have Aaron and you have her. You have the two thieves on either side. But I don't think that's the primary Christological application here. I think the primary Christological application is in seeing the difference between a missing figure in the preceding episode and this one. In the preceding episode, Moses goes up onto the rock and he holds up the staff of God with the Lord himself standing in front of the rock. But here, Moses goes up onto the hill by himself. And it's as though Moses, and we see this in the figure of the transfiguration, the passage of the transfiguration that we read a week or two ago, Uh, where Moses is identified with Jesus and is in continuity with Jesus. So I think that figure of Moses standing there and standing in the place of God, as it were, is where our focus should be when we're facing battles in ministry, is constantly being reminded that we have a high priest who intercedes for us. And in the midst of all of the little political bickerings about this and that in the context of the church, we're mindful that on the hill, with the support of God's people, with the support of the saints through time. There is our Lord with his arms outstretched, the God-man, the Moses Christ, interceding for us. And as long as he is interceding for us, there is hope. And if the gospel is not at the heart of what we're doing, in other words, the arms go down, then we really are in a mess. But in the meantime, there's reason for good news and there's reason for hope even in the circumstance of that post-conversion squabbling from within and battling from outside. Ours is the battle. Christ's is the victory. We stand in unity with him. Thanks be to God. Amen.